This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Maybe more than I should, but putting a lot of blame on the game. Like, why isn't the game structured in a way that prevents us from hanging out in the tavern forever and never going and fighting the goblins? Right. Because I'm the person who wants to go and fight the goblins and not, I don't want to just sit around in the tavern. Um, and so part of part of the impetus to, impetus to design my game was to make a game that was structured and that wouldn't let people dilly-dally. The game kind of acting as an editor and saying like, nope, that scene's done, or this moment is going on too long. We're gonna move on to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. What exactly is the genre Magical Girl? And how does it work as an RPG? Stick around and you'll find out. I talked with Andrew Gillis about their new RPG, Girl by Moonlight. Now, Andrew's origin story is one of the most unique ones you've heard on this show. I was interested in why they chose Forged in the Dark as the basis of the game versus Powered by the Apocalypse. Listen closely and you'll learn how the game Darkest Dungeon influenced one of the mechanics in Girl by Moonlight. And if you need a reason to get excited about this game, wait for the segment on the playbooks. It was the playbooks that hooked me. This episode is possible because of the support on Patreon from our patrons. Big welcome to some of the newest floor heads, Athios, Jonathan M, Borgie, Rasmus Peterson, and Boca Bard. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Andrew. Okay, you want to see if you can tell if they're lying to you? Go ahead and roll. Ugh, sorry, you missed by three. Uh, yeah, you think they're telling the truth. This is Sean. And this is Navi. And together we're a couple of drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Dead Bell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Top. Top. Toppy Top Top. Don't <laughs> try that again. <laughs> when we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Welcome to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. Your host, Craig Shipman. Howdy, friends. Craig here. Today I sit down with Andrew Gillis, a game designer former bike mechanic, role player, and the author of the Forged in the Dark TTRPG, Girl by Moonlight. Andrew, welcome to the third floor. Hi, thanks for having me. So I got to make a confession. Sure. I've, I've been secretly stalking to, to get you on the show. And as soon as Sean Nittner connected us, I was like super excited. Oh, well, that's that's nice to hear in a, <laughs> <Yeah>. in a way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not creepy at all, Craig. Keep going, right? Um, so Andrew, uh, unfortunately you have to answer the question you get on every single podcast you come on to, but I like to phrase it a little bit differently, which is at some, at one point you knew nothing about this hobby. You knew nothing about taking a sheet of paper, pretending to be somebody else and going through, you know, a scenario and an adventure. I'd like to go back to the moment it was first put in front of you. Hmm. So I've been doing something more or less in line with role-playing, uh, since I was maybe, like six years old, eight years old, something in that kind of range. So? Um, so me and uh, me and my one friend in elementary school, we would do and, you know, and like in the current environment, I would almost say it was kind of like having like OCs or doing almost like a 
a fanfic kind of thing, but we would we would tell stories about characters that we had created while just walking laps around my schoolyard at recess and lunchtime. Um, and that same friend and I later started, you know, checking out like Dungeons and Dragons and some of the other kind of mainstream RPGs that were available, you know, like uh, eventually me and him and a couple other folks got into like vampire the masquerade and these kinds of things but it all started with he and i just making stuff up off the cuff at recess and my characters that i would come up with were incredibly silly little things they were mostly based (laughs) off of like little lego guys that i had or whatever and you know i would build these whole kind of uh interconnected webs of character and identity and stuff around them uh and it you know, we stumbled our way through the hobby from there because our, certainly our first forays into D&D were more akin to making stuff up about some characters right. that we liked rather than like playing the game properly. So, so yeah, it was a long, a long road from there. <laughs> so quick question then. I, I would imagine that uh, in elementary school, there's probably a good chance that Andrew did not have a real clear sense of what you were doing. You're just you and your buddy and you walk around, you tell stories. But now looking back at what you are doing now and your love for this hobby let's look back at that kid in elementary school what do you think that they were what was going on with them gosh i don't know i mean certainly uh you know fantasy as an escape uh, is a very powerful thing and you know whether or not you can put a name to the thing you're running from uh you will have that (laughs) urge to run (laughs) right so yeah so i think a lot of it was to do with that of of not being terribly comfortable in my skin and, and looking for ways to, you know, find alternatives, I guess. Um, and, you know, like when I say me and my one friend, I really do mean me and my one friend. I had like one friend at school yeah. um, and, and then kind of a patchwork of other, of like acquaintances, but there was like one kid that I hung out with. And so, you know, my horizons were pretty narrow in that way. And I was, you know, I, I was close with my brother as well and he was a friend of a sort, but he was four years older than me. And so like right. he and I would spend a lot of time doing stuff, uh, fighting, but also, uh, <laughs> enjoying each other's company and kind of the, the pendulum would swing between the two. But, uh, every, every one of those activities that I did, um, were mostly about getting outside of myself. Um, right. I, you know, I played sports and stuff as a kid, but I didn't really like it. And I often didn't really feel comfortable in those kinds of social environments that those things create, even though later in life I would become a huge jock for one very particular niche sport, which uh, was bike polo. Uh, oh, but I've never even, I didn't even know such a thing existed. What is bike polo? So hardcore bike polo. It's like a three on three street hockey, but you're on a bike and you have a, a mallet in one hand and you're trying oh, to, Oh my goodness. Scroll. So until I had found that I was like, no sports suck. I don't like these <laughs> things. And then there was like the one site of activity that actually, just clicked kind of meshed with me and you know felt correct when i got into it but always i felt really mismatched to what i was doing and so yeah i think there was you know in hindsight there was that need to get out yeah and you know to a certain degree andrew you know the that story is going to resonate with a lot of people listening right uh i think that's it's for a lot of a lot of us kids and i was one of them for different reasons or the same reasons who knows and i guess what i'm wondering for you like we can escape to books, we can escape, you know, to movies, uh, we can escape to, to drawing and things like that. But for you, it seemed to be storytelling was a powerful escape. And, you know, uh, I'm wondering whether you have a sense of where that drive to tell stories comes from. Gosh, I mean, 
I think we, we naturally gravitate to stories. I think stories mm-hmm. are always really powerful and we, we make stories out of things that don't have them. Right. Like, <laughs> we do. <laughs> um, you know, I can't help it. I have these like intrusive thoughts all the time where uh, I have a spinal cord injury and I got, I got sick. I had this autoimmune condition. There was nothing I could have done about it or known about it. And still I'm always like, okay, well, what caused it? Like, what's yeah. the, what's the narrative, right? What's the A to B to C and the, you know, the, the rising action of yep. this completely arbitrary thing that happened to me. And I'll still catch myself thinking about that. Like, Oh, it's because this thing or whatever. And then I'll, and then I'll reflect on it and be like, no, that's completely, that's nonsense. Right. I am ascribing yep. a narrative where there is none. Um, and I think that's a very human tendency. We see the people doing this all the time, trying to connect dots, like conspiratorial thinking is another good example of this, right. Where we, we so want there to be, a clear causality to things and an, and an order right to what's happening around us, even as often it's very arbitrary. So, so I think that's, that's what I would put forward as the, the source of this impulse. Uh, (laughs) And that is not just me. uh, It's all of us, but that stories are really alluring because they, you know, once you have that, a structure built, right. The structure of a story, you can point that in a direction and run with it as far as you want to go. And that can take you, that can take you to different places and take you very far from yourself or whatever else that you're, you know, trying to while away the hours while waiting for. So, and that resonates a lot with me, Andrew, for a couple of reasons. One, um, stories can be very comforting and they can be also give us a sense of control, which is kind of what you're hinting at. Um, I have Crohn's disease, which is, which is a a chronic disease that uh, nobody knows yet what causes it. Um, They don't treat uh, the disease. They treat the symptoms And it took me, I went through many stories trying to figure it out and trying to understand it. And it took me a long time to be comfortable with the fact like this is just who I am now, right? This is a part of who I am now. And maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe they won't. And I'm going to get through it. But boy, when you say create stories, it was a constant. And I would create stories around how did I get here? Mm -hmm. And also create stories about flare-ups right so when the disease gets worse or gets better nobody knows what causes that either but boy i'll build a narrative yeah exactly exactly (laughs) it's amazing how powerful that they are yeah so you're like we need we need something to kind of hook on to right stories are that handle that you can get on reality or or a thing that's happening it puts things in order right um it puts things in order and you can we can take that all the way to organized religion it's just it's all over the place (laughs) absolutely all over the place so you you find D and D, and like most uh, kids that play D and D, you what you were playing <laughs> wasn't D and D, even though it may have said it on the box. Um, and then you said you found uh, Vampire the Masquerade next. I'd, I'd like to talk about that transition because uh, those are two very different games. I mean, I could I could make some arguments for them being very similar in some ways that How so? that hold them back. So like, oh gosh, I don't know. Maybe people will flame me on the internet for saying these kinds of things, but uh, <laughs> VTM is. It, it takes on a lot of aesthetics that aspire to be more than D and D, right? Like, it's, oh yeah, we've got a storyteller, we're a troop. There's all these kinds of trappings of these aspirations that extended beyond that. But certainly in the early versions, it was still, you know, like a very thick portion of that book was about how you murder things and right, right? like there was, it was, it was more. There was more to it. It talked about social interaction in ways that you know D and D really fell short of and still does to this day. Yeah, but. You know, it's uh, baby steps, baby steps mm-hmm. and getting away from that. And I think that's part of why 
you know, if you, if we, us as wanting something more than what D and D was giving us, it was a fairly comfortable thing to slip into where there was still some of that familiar stuff. And certainly for some of the people we were playing with, that was still all they really wanted to engage with. They were just like, how do I maximize my number of actions in a combat round so that I can like mega murder everything. Um, (laughs) And then I was over there trying to come up with like some uh, arcane character concept that no one gave a crap about and my, you know, <laughs> writing my backstory and all this kind of thing. So, right. so yeah, I think it was a useful kind of stepping stone out of D and D and got me thinking, you know, that there are other games to play, which was very helpful, but fundamentally you end up doing a lot of the same kind of stuff, at least with the people I was playing with. It, it, <laughs> it didn't get far enough away for me. Right. You, you, you bent the game to, to, to your table. Yeah. It sounds as like. best as, as yeah. best as I could. And, and my other, you know, other folks at the table were trying to bend it in different directions than I was at that mm-hmm. time. So. So we talk about Vampire the Masquerade as a stepping stone. What was the leap? When, when was the first time you came across something and went, oh, now this is what I thought this hobby was. So it, I was very, by pure dumb luck, I kind of stumbled into so my my partner at the time was going to UBC and which is the university out over here and uh, Avery was organizing uh, oh, story game go. sessions of just like drop in come and play some games at a cafe uh, and my partner got one of these little you know ticket stubs essentially to go and attend this thing and was like hey you do this kind of stuff right like let's go do this thing um, and so we went. Uh, to this little cafe. Uh, it just so happened that my friend Daniel was there who I had met before because I live in a very, in a big city that is a small town. He was a roommate <laughs> of a friend of a friend. So like I was kind of acquainted with some people in this space. Um, and I think I played like Penny for Your Thoughts and Solaris maybe is the name of it. Not Solaris. The one where the the world is melting. Polaris? Yep. Solaris? I can't, I, remember I, can't remember. I know exactly what you're talking about, though. Yeah. <laughs> so I played a couple of these games uh, and I attended a couple of these kind of drop in things. And then because I was a familiar face in that kind of, you know, friend of a friend's roommate kind of way, uh, I ended up getting invited to sub in for Avery when she dropped out from the Apocalypse World playtest that Daniel Avery. John Stone uh, and some other folks were playing. Uh, and so that was that was a big eye opener for me. I played I this. I made this absolutely horrible character <laughs> and had a, had a blast playing them. They were just the worst. And uh, yeah, it was great. I just got to, you know, finally have some agency as a player to yeah. muck around and, and get into trouble in ways that I discovered were really, really fun and that I had been, you know, this was what I had been missing this whole time. It's really easy to forget just how revolutionary apocalypse world was right there was nothing like it before um yeah especially if you weren't like on the forge or or deep right. into this scene right like for me it was this huge shift like all of these games were so different even as they spoke in very familiar language the yeah. stuff they were doing with it was so so very different um and so it was a big big broadening of horizons big eye opener was it easy or hard for you to make that leap though? Uh, was it just immediate as soon as you like understood the framework, you're like, yeah, I get this. Let's go. Or did you struggle with aspects of it? So I think to come back to this whole thing about storytelling, right? Like that's at the heart of a lot of those games and, you know, most games in general that were, you know, we were making fiction collaboratively together. And so having been interested a little bit in like doing some creative writing and, and that was something that I was, um, you know, pretty, 
successful at in course of like, you know, academic pursuits and these kinds of things. And so that skill set being available to me uh, meant that, yeah, these games didn't feel unnatural to pick up, right? Like the stuff that they were doing with fiction and with stories felt very natural. And there, and then the idea of like a game system was also something that I was familiar with broadly. And so the, the connecting of those two ideas felt, yeah, felt pretty straightforward. And that, you know, obviously I've gotten better at the act of role-playing over time, but <laughs> sure. But it didn't, yeah, it didn't feel strange or, or uncomfortable to step into. It was actually pretty smooth. So it's an interesting statement to say you've gotten better at role-playing over time. How do you measure that? So, I mean, I have a lot of uh, strong opinions, you know, it's part of, part of everyone I think who makes a game is right. That you have a bunch of, uh, opinions about how to play role-playing games or how, mm-hmm. how they are best, you know, to be structured or whatever else. But, uh, I don't know. I was always just very interested in like making, making compelling characters, telling compelling stories, not, you know, chewing the scenery for too long, getting into the actual, you know, collaborative moments that the, the action of the game and, and trying to gel well with the people at the table and, and actually make something with them rather than just be doing something in parallel, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So it does. So having these aspirations, you know, I'm always trying to do better at all of those things. And like when I was on uh, actual play shows and stuff, I would review, <laughs> I would review the tapes and I would look for opportunities <laughs> for like, Oh yeah. How could I have like tied my character's story in better with another characters or yeah. made, made this moment, you know, resolve more things that were ongoing or whatever. That's, that's always on my mind when I'm playing and, and in designing a game, I've always tried to, to build things out that will enable, you know, those things that will hit point people at those same targets that I have and help them hit them. So let's imagine a scenario where I go find one of those more recent APs where you've played and I watch that. And then I come across this old VHS tape that somebody (laughs) you didn't know they recorded you playing Vampire the Masquerade. And I go, okay, now I've got, you know, I've got a before and after of Andrew. Mm. I imagine there's going to be a lot that's different. But what I want to know is what would I find was the same? So after all of this time with all of these games, what do you think that I would have seen in a younger Andrew playing Vampire the Masquerade that I would see in your most recent AP? So what hasn't changed? Let me walk down memory lane a moment and try to review (laughs) here. So great. Yeah, I think I think something that's been really consistent for me is that I don't tend to like playing heroic characters or characters that you Mm. would kind of typically see at the in the driver's seat of any given you know narrative um i've gravitated towards either supporting characters or just like characters that are are weird to follow around right that their their stories are a little bit more off kilter uh, or they're terrible people and or they're villains or whatever <laughs> like you know in one of my early D games i played this horrible little changeling person who like who did betray the party. And at one point I just handed my character sheet over. I was like, no, nope, they're one of the villains. Now here you go. I'm going to make a new character. Um, so I'm, I'm a player who has done, who does that kind of stuff and, and right. likes to kind of stir the pot. Uh, and that has always been true. And I've just gotten, uh, I've embraced that more uh, sincerely <laughs> over time. Yeah. I've just been like, no, I'm going to play a complete piece of shit this session. Like this is, <laughs> let's go. And you know, I'm going to find games that let me do that in a way that's, you know, constructive. I don't want right. to derail the session or anything, but I am going to be plotting and scheming and, and doing things that are not good for me. 
Well, and that, and that's very different than your typical. That's what my character would do type player, right? Those are those are two different things yes. uh, completely. And uh, one of my favorite things as a GM is to come across a player who, when I go, all right, well, let's talk about a consequence, and they're like, oh, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love consequences, and those are my favorite players, right? That embrace that entire entire thing. Yeah, I mean, the dice are going to give it to you, so you may as well enjoy it, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, last little piece here, Andrew. There's um, now that we have an understanding of kind of your path that's led led to here the one little thing that makes you different um than a lot of other people so there's a lot again there's going to be a lot of people that have just listened to your story and it's going to resonate they're going to find pieces of your story that resonates with them but what they've only ever done is created at the table maybe they're a gm maybe they're a player and what they haven't done is what you're doing which is saying i'm going to create beyond my table um i'm going to create a game and i, I want to get a sense of when that happens and what drives that. Yeah. So it was something that I kind of had flirted with for a long time, but it's such a, such a big undertaking that I had often like started to nibble at the edges and then bounced off or like not had enough kind of, you know, like your game design education is, is secretly happening as you play more and more (laughs) role-playing games. And I hadn't, I hadn't gone through enough courses yet to get that, understanding of like what is possible and what structures could exist or what the what the medium ultimately really is and what you can do within it and obviously that's a process that is ongoing forever but but yeah like getting to that point where me this thing that i had said several times in the past of like oh yeah i kind of want to make a game like that actually happening (laughs) getting anywhere uh didn't didn't happen until gbm um well, but but pause one second for me though, Andrew. So, I have played a lot of games, and I've interviewed a lot of creators. And one of the more common questions that I get from listeners is, "Hey, Craig, when are you going to put out your game?" <laughs> and I tell them, "I'm not going to. Like, I have no interest in creating a game." So I'm trying to get a sense what's different between the two of us. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Like, I was always, I've often been a especially as a kid, I would always have like big ideas and an inability to follow through on them, but I never let that stop me. <laughs> uh, there is this kind of hubris uh, present in designing sure. a game maybe. Um, but also I think like dissatisfaction and having opinions and, and these kinds of things can also be really big drivers for actually yeah. following through on it. Um, for me, a lot of it is about like sitting at the table and playing a game with people and being frustrated with the outcomes that the game is generating mm-hmm. um, and and putting a lot of uh, maybe more than I should, but putting a lot of blame on the game. Like, why isn't the game structured in a way that prevents us from hanging out in the tavern forever and never going and fighting the goblins? Right. Because I'm the person who wants to go and fight the goblins and not I don't want to just sit around in the tavern. Um and so part of part of the impetus to impetus to design my game was to make a game that was structured and that wouldn't let people dilly dally the game kind of acting as an editor and saying like, nope, that scene's done or this moment is going on too long. We're going to move on to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. Um, so, you know, being really opinionated and trying to uh, to the point where I am willing to like write a write a 225 page game manual <laughs> that so that i can shake it at people and be like no this is how you do it um so maybe maybe a little bit of spite uh in the mix as well but yeah i can't i can't really put a put a finger on exactly what 
I think you did. Drives a person to do. No, I think you did. <laughs> I think it's, 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 and you tell me if I'm wrong here. Tell me if I've captured this. It's having a voice, right? You, and, you know, when you talk about your opinions, that's what you're talking about. I have a voice. I have a perspective on this hobby. And this is one way to express it. Um, sounds like there's a little bit of problem solving happening where you've found issues and you think it doesn't have to be this way. I wonder if I can fix it. I wonder if I could build something that doesn't have these problems. I made total sense to me, Andrew. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and also like for for girl Blind moonlight there was definitely a moment where like i watched this one show madoka um and you know had been a fan of magical other magical girls magical girl stuff that i had seen previously but i watched this show and i was like damn that was really good that's doing a lot of cool things it would be really fun to play within that space right no such game exists and it is i'm, I'm not going to sit around waiting for it to exist and so this this idea came through that was pretty clear in that sense uh, mm -hmm. of like what it would be about and what the aesthetics of it would contain. And, and so I was like, yeah, why not, why not me making this thing? Why, why shouldn't it be me that does it? That's very cool. So guys, the insider insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. That's exactly what we're going to do with Andrew today. We're going to take a quick break and we get back. Let's talk about Girl by Moonlight. Oh, uh, hey, it's me. Um, I'm interrupting this episode. And I hope you're enjoying it, and I bet you're anxious to hear the rest. But before we jump back, I need a favor. Do you know someone who might enjoy this episode? Can you shoot them a quick message or maybe even send them a link to it? Listeners sharing this podcast was the primary reason we almost doubled our audience last year. Also, would you like to see and hear these games in action? Go to the Third Floor Wars YouTube channel and Twitch stream. Our actual plays combine compelling role-playing, character-driven action, and system tutorials. We create great stories while lifting the hood and showcasing the game mechanics. Links to both are in the show notes. Okay, last thing, and I mean it. Have you rated this podcast on your pod platform yet? Maybe even written a short review? It is a simple way for you to be even more awesome than you already are. Okay, now I'm done. Let's jump back and listen to the rest of this episode. So before we jump into this, and I've got all kinds of questions, um, and uh, you might laugh at a few of them, but I think it's important to set the context. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to steal some text uh, that explains Girl by Moonlight. Girl by Moonlight is a multi-genre RPG of magical girls grappling with destiny, hopes thwarted, defended, redeemed, and betrayed. It explores the heartbreak of denying who you are, fighting for what you believe in, and the transcendent power of relationships and community. These magical girls clutch their tragic struggles tight, seeking to score defiant triumphs against the darkness of an oppressive society. Wow. So... I am a 51-year-old cis white male. And I sat down, I think the closest I came to this genre, because I understand, like I, I understand what magical girls as a genre is. And um I sat down and I watched several episodes of oh God, what is the famous one? Moon Sailor Moon. Thank you. I watched several episodes of Sailor Moon. 
And here's what I walked away with. That was really cool. Not my thing, but guess what? It's not made for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's okay. So it's okay to see something and go, this is really cool. This is really special. I get why people like it. Um, whether it is made for me or not, doesn't matter that it can still be true. But the, but the, we hear the term magical girls as a genre all the time. And I guess what I want to start with Andrew is understanding, like, I think I know what that genre means, but I think you must have a much better idea of what it means than I do. So can we help other old men like me understand it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can break it down. And like, as with any, as with anything, you know, like the game, my game is definitely about like my own relationship to the genre. And so, sure. so when I say these things, I don't want anyone coming at me being like, you know, like I'm trying to strictly define it or, or set a definition that will be etched in stone forever. There, there's but, like five people listening to this podcast. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might all hate me. <laughs> so a lot of the big things in magical girl fiction are, you know, obviously like the girl part is pretty important. This was a, uh, a move to having, you know, women, mostly young women as the protagonists of these stories. Um, and that they would be doing a lot of the things that were traditionally in the territory of, you know, like, uh, male, uh, comic book hero type of stuff. Right. right? So, so that was one of the big first initial moves of it to define the genre. Right. And sailor moon was quite, uh, unprecedented when in its moment when it emerged, even though you can definitely be critical of like the narrow band, the relatively narrow band of stuff that it presents as being, you know, feminine or the definitions of girl and stuff that it uses um, for its time, definitely moving, moving in a good direction. And so, so those stories being at the forefront, that means that you have like a coming of age narrative still, right. Which is a very, common and relatable thing that's still very fundamental it's there that's why you'll often see in magical girl fiction uh the villains will be grown women who Mm. are very self-assured who are very feminine who are interesting almost kind of vampy like they'll have good makeup and big hair and stuff like this um because that is the natural antithesis to your heroic young woman who's still trying to figure herself out right like sailor moon Usagi, she's like a klutz, right? She's not this refined and and perfected femininity, right? It's a more relatable, frumpy and dysfunctional one that's going to get there eventually, right? right? There is this element of aspiration. So, so that's a really important bit of framing and you know, all of that will bend and adjust based on, you know, who the, who the main character is and what their story ultimately is. But that's a core thing in the genre that bears mentioning. Um, and then when we talk about magical, right, it's that we are, we are going to have there be, you know, magical powers, but also monsters that they're fighting mm-hmm. and, and that this will be, this will also be symbolic or a metaphor. Right. And so in Sailor Moon, a lot of what you see is like peers of the main characters that will get turned into monsters by various, like functionally various social forces that are at play in their lives that are given form through this this magical antagonism that's presented in front of them and so you know they're they're fighting a monster but that monster is really about like i don't know gambling or or (laughs) being at the arcade too much or whatever right like there's always a lesson kind of Mm -hmm. stashed away in these things and and that the monsters are allegories or symbols that represent you know different struggles that people face and the ways in which if they cannot 
you know, have support from other people, you know, that they're going to go down some dysfunctional path and it makes them literally monstrous. Interesting. Uh, and that, that's how you can address those social issues uh, head on, right? In a way that in the real world, right, we can't go punch misogyny in the face, but in Sailor Moon, that might well happen. So that's, I think, another big core thing of the genre. And how do these magical girls deal with these, right? Do they defeat them? Do they reform them? Do they redeem them? Do they do all of the above? See, it's more in that space of reforming and redeeming, which I think uh -huh. is also really key, right? It's not that you're going to just your friend gets turned into a monster and then you just bloodily murder them. Right? That's <laughs> right. not the vibe. Um, you're, you're there to try to save them, right? You want to make the world better and you don't do that by just eliminating uh, people that have become problems. You do that by trying to mend things and, and to, to give them that support that they were missing to, you know, it, it's a, it's something that's built into my game in terms of like, you can forgive a monster and that could be as effective as right. doing some big attack on it or whatever, right? That there is this emotional valence to everything that is really, really uh, fundamental and, and equivalent to, or, or in parallel to the like action, the more kind of traditional action, right? Of like swinging punches and jumping over stuff. So for someone listening now, they're like, oh, wow, like I kind of get it a little bit more and I want to get into this a little bit more before we talk about the game. Can we give them a couple recommendations? So if we have tickled the interest of somebody who might want to explore this genre, what is maybe three or four things that you would say you need to go watch or read this? Mm, so I, I include touchstones in the book for this very reason. It's a really nice shorthand to communicate to people. But yeah. I think my picks would probably be uh steven universe um by rebecca sugar uh puella magica madoka which i can't remember the author director's name or whatever but madoka is very good it's very uh tonally different i uh, will say it's very messed up um but this is to give people a big range right because sure, the genre sure. genre is really flexible right it's a set of it's like an armature, but you can you can build a lot of different things on that armature. Right. And so it's nice to see this range. Um, and then to do another weird oddball pick, we could say uh, Paprika, directed by Satoshi Kon, which is a surreal dream traveling thing. But mm. at its core, there is this uh, this woman. She's not young, but she does have this kind of identity crisis built into her character concept and it is about her kind of coming to terms with a lot of that kind of stuff in the process of engaging in this big magical symbolic uh kind of battle or unraveling of a mystery and so so we're still ticking a lot of those same boxes even as right. these things are all very very different right like in thinking about genre i i did this great course in college where we talked about westerns right so we think you know cowboys and all that kind of stuff and so we we watched some of the classic spaghetti westerns we read uh, a book called the englishman's boy which is like a really really revisionist western that is showing how all these people kind of sucked and how colonialism <laughs> was awful and all this kind of stuff right it gets right. into a lot of that um and then we watched a movie called Tampopo, which is a Japanese uh, noodle Western. Interesting. And it's a movie that's about ramen. And it's the protagonist is this woman 
uh, this widow who is trying to take over her husband's ramen shop and doesn't actually know how to do any of the stuff she needs to do. And so this cowboy figure rides in. He drives a truck. He's a truck driver. He has this friend whose name is Gun. And so he rides into town, chases out a bunch of her like shitty regulars and then helps her learn how to be a better ramen chef and like, you know, get her get her life back on track. Um absolutely brilliant movie but it uses the format of a western right and you know has nothing to do with the stuff materially that we would normally associate with westerns yep and so that was just such a a wonderful introduction to the idea of genre and a great way to frame it right is that genre exists in this big spectrum of right. you know early works that define the genre into later works that start to question or subvert the genre into just an, as absurd a twist on it as you want to put right there's they're very flexible and and they have a big range. They're really useful so that, you know, authors can get books published, um, <laughs> you know, and they can just say, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a noir, right? It's right. a murder mystery, whatever, right? And people can be like, oh, yeah, that's a box I can put this in. But there's a lot of space within that box to do all kinds of wild stuff, so – well, and you, it, it, it's a shorthand, right? And it's exactly. also an opportunity to, to do twists on it, right? So Star Wars is a, a space Western, right? You know, there's all yeah. kinds of different ways to, that you can mash those up. So I, we've kind of hinted at the, the seed of uh, Girl by Moonlight. It sounds like you were watching um, some of these shows, some of these movies, and you wanted to play in this world. Um, and you said, you know, there, there, there's, ga- there's a game here. We go look. We don't see the game. <laughs> We are cocky and you have the hubris enough to yeah, think we exactly, can make the game. Exactly. But that wasn't like, like, I'm sure you'd had other ideas before that, right? And, and you've had other ideas since. And what I always find interesting is from a creative standpoint, a creative will eventually pick up an idea and will run with it and, and, and take it to, to, to not the not fun part yeah. of making the <laughs> stuff and stay with it. So I guess what I want to start there. What is it about girl by moonlight that said that first made you pick that out of the, uh, off the shelf of ideas and then run with it as far as you have. Yeah. I really wanted that particular bundle of aesthetics was very compelling to me. Like I really, really wanted that to be a thing that I could play very badly. Um, and it was at the right moment, I think where, uh, my life was such that I had the time and space and energy to do it. Right. Um, I also had the right amount of inspiration around me. I was playing role playing games a lot because I was basically doing it at least in part as a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just in it and it was, you know, that immersion within the discipline uh, or the folk practice or whatever you want to call it uh, was absolutely uh, integral to making this happen. It would not have happened otherwise. Um and so there was also just a clarity to it for me, I think, that mm. like the idea formed very quickly and very comprehensively in a way that I could I could see the the silhouette of the game very early on and it and I felt it felt very clear to me. And so it was it wasn't that hard to pursue that aesthetic or that set of aesthetics. Um and, and to know that I was making progress, I guess, right? Which is the really big thing. You get your hooks into it. You start actually feeling like you're getting somewhere. That's very motivating to keep doing it. Can you help me understand the clear vision at the beginning, right? So that, that's that's pretty powerful to, to, in some ways, it sounds like a lot of things that were formed before anything was made. W- what was that initial silhouette? So 
and it it follows uh, like if I had never played Monster Hearts, I would not have been able to make this game because right. a lot of the scaffolding from it really comes from that. But mm-hmm. basically, you know, I watched Madoka was the big kind of po- inflection point, and I thought, you know, like what are the things that are really great that I want to pull out of here? And it's that you know, it's I wanted to make a game where bad things would happen to the characters. It was not purely wish fulfillment or sunshine and rainbows. There were definitely there would be struggle and difficulty and and consequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that magical word that we all all role players learn to love, <laughs> um, and that I wanted to have something about character relationships and character emotions being in, very very central and fundamental to what's going on in the story, um, because Madoka ultimately is really it centers around the one character and basically like a choice that she has to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone else has opinions about whether or not she should make the choice, wh- which side she should land on, whether she should be allowed to do it at all. Like everyone comes in and gets involved in that and they all express these different ideas around it. And then the culmination of the story is, is her doing that, right? Like right. The, the plot, the action of the story is way less consequential really than that one decision. Yeah. Um, which, which you come to all through internal stuff and through talking to other characters and it's very relational and integrated in that way. And so making a game that encouraged that kind of stuff was very inspiring to me. I was very excited about that idea of having this like emotion and character driven narrative. And then lastly, that the characters are kind of, they're tragic heroes in that they, Mm -hmm. they are their own undoing all the time, right? (laughs) Like they all, they all come to ruin because of the, the qualities that make them great basically. And so that, that inversion being possible, right? That these, the heroic potential of the characters can be flipped, uh, was great. And for having monster hearts to look at and see the darkest self kind of operation within that, um, I was very excited about the idea of adapting that into, into this other thing, uh, which I ended up calling eclipse to keep, keep the moon metaphor going. Yeah. And what's <laughs> interesting to me, it's a good, great, great choice uh, evocative, right? Um, so you, you framing this up for me and then, uh, and citing Avery's monster hearts, like totally makes sense, but this is not a powered by the apocalypse game. So at what point does Forged in the Dark start knocking on your door? Well, so this was the other serendipitous thing is I started out doing uh, a Powered by the Apocalypse game and I really stumbled in that initial prototype. It was not good. Yeah. Um, And I wanted to do this kind of like structured play thing because I was very opinionated. Uh, And right around that time is when uh, I keyed into Blades in the Dark existing and what it was about and the it checks a lot of the right boxes in terms of those aesthetics that I was chasing and it was just mm-hmm. such a good fit and so locking that in and 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 deciding to start hacking blades and we can talk a little bit about the process of the distinction of designing a game versus hacking another game right. um that gave me such a such a powerful roadmap to to lo- to kind of overlay my ideas onto and and those paths converged or or aligned uh, a lot a lot of the time and so so it felt very natural then to to grab that and run with it and blades is built to be pulled apart and put back together yeah. and, and yeah. hacked. John's and played made that with. 
very easy too. Um, yeah. and it's so supportive of it, which is, which is great. Um, and, and listeners already know this, but I'm the biggest shill for John's work, especially, <laughs> especially blades. Um, it's hard for me to not bring it up at some point during an interview. I'm glad you did it first. Um, and so as a result, a lot of us are familiar with blades. Um, it's a pretty big game. And what I always think is interesting when I talk to people that are making forged in the dark games is what did you keep? What did you drop? And what did you reskin? So maybe we can start with what you kept. So what are things that you kept from the basic forge in the dark premise that, that if I am up, I've been playing blaze for five years now, I'm going to pick up girl by moonlight and go, this is super familiar. What'll be familiar to me. So uh, in my approach to hacking the game, part of my ethos around that, like, I, I probably think about this a little differently than some people do, but yeah. if I'm hacking something, usually that's as a matter of respect for the game, right? Like if I think blades is really good and I want to hack it, then part of my goal is to uh, retain as many of its original pieces as possible. Right. Or if I am taking something out to plug something back in that has a similar shape or to mm. make a very deliberate choice about how I'm changing that element. And so there will be a lot of things that are very familiar to players of Blades in the Dark. Like there's still a stress track. There are still special abilities. There are still actions and action dots. Um, but there's one less action in each attribute. Mm. Um, so you're, you know, your resistances are lower. You have less <laughs> action dots overall. So you're less able to act on your own. Um, the game has a mechanic where you gain stress at the beginning of every cycle of play rather than having oh, wow. advice that you go on to get rid of your stress. And it has an episodic format. So there's like a, a loop that you go through and things kind of reset uh, based on that, which is which is a pretty big departure from Blades, which has this kind of more steady ongoing grind. Right. Um, you know, I've pulled out tier and some of the other kind of progression oriented mechanics and really flattened a lot of that stuff down for the purposes of the game. And there's no fixed setting instead everyone authors a setting together in a situation the adverse adversaries etc so that was a big one i definitely like the setting in blades is load bearing and so you can't right. just replace it with anything and expect the game to still work yep. and similarly if you're hacking it you need to build a load bearing setting or in my Great case provide it. a set of tools that will consistently output a setting that will be adequately robust to support the playing of the game. And there are a lot of reasons for the setting being important. Obviously, like you need a ghost field to attune to, you need mechanical objects to tinker with, but mm -hmm. also like the characters are human beings who, and there's gravity and all of these other very familiar elements that we kind of, that it's easy to gloss over, but knowing that that's true about the characters means that when you go, I'm going to jump from this building to that building, the GM can say, cool, that's a desperate, move right. and you will fall to your death so we're gonna call that you know yeah yeah exactly like it's you need to have some kind of grounding and shared understanding of what's possible and the setting does a lot of that work uh, yeah and so it's really useful to have that uh consensus established as early as possible and you can get into really dangerous territory when that phrase at the edges and it starts to break <laughs> <I'm sure>. down. <laughs> All right. So I'm uh, flipping through my copy of Girl by Moonlight and I go, OK, I see monster hearts in here. Obviously, I see blades, fingerprints all over this. Are there games that I might not notice that are in there? Are there other influences, games that you've played that that s snuck in here in some way? So I cribbed a mechanic from the computer game Darkest Dungeon 
Ooh. If you're familiar with that. I love that game. So in so Darkest Dungeon, when a character's stress meter fills, they yeah. hit this like crisis moment. And often that results in them getting this like negative, going into this negative mode, right? Where they're hopeless or desperate or whatever. And they start doing dysfunctional and bad things and messing with you. But there's also a very small chance that they will get a that they will rise above the crisis and have this virtue that triggers. And that's the best feeling when you're playing Darkest Dungeon. Right? And <laughs> when you get it happens. and you're just like, this is sick. This is so helpful. Because, <laughs> you know, if if you're in that situation, then things are bad, right? It's a bad situation that then starts to spiral out of control, but there's a small chance that it actually bounces back. Oh, that's um, cool. And when you roll to see if you fall into eclipse in the game, um, if you get a crit on that roll, then you actually this really powerful big good thing happens that's cool. you have this heroic moment that then affects the whole team and really flips that scenario so that was a fun little thing uh that i got to just fully steal and adapt as a concept <laughs> at least uh and fit into my game um it creates a very visceral moment right and and now you know having a, a person who's played an embarrassing amount of darkest dungeon <laughs> um and as again a, a, a fully grown ass adult male like will be yelling in my living room when yeah, i'm like, hollering like, when that happens right yeah. exactly it's like <laughs> oh and my stress meter went down and you know it's, it's a great feeling and I, and it's immediately for me to be able to see that happening at a table where things are dark things are not going well and someone rolls that crit that must that creates the moments that we talk about uh you know for a very long time I want to talk a little bit, Andrew, because um, I feel like we didn't spend enough time there, it, the structure, because we've already learned how important structure is to you as mm. a player, right? And that's part of what drove you uh, to this terrible idea of spending all these hours making a game. Um, can we talk about, I mean, the cycle? Uh, that you, yes. And you hinted at it, and you said it's not the same as the grind of Blades. Yeah, so when you play Girl by Moonlight, you're going to run a series, and so that's one continuity of play. That's the biggest uh, umbrella. And then within that, there are seasons and there are various things that will determine when a season ends, the next next one begins. Um, a thing that I encourage people to do is to change who's in the director's seat, which is the kind of GM role right. to rotate that between seasons. Um, it's a good opportunity to kind of adjust or reframe the story, these kinds of things. And then every season is composed of episodes and every episode has a set of phases within it. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do the obligation phase where we see the characters in their day-to-day -day lives and they kind of deal with all the bullshit that they have to in those situations. And that's a place where they gain a bunch of stress, like bad things happen to them right up front. And it reminds us, you know, this is the world we're trying to change. Right. And then you go into downtime, which will be familiar from people from for anyone who's played Blades. Right. And that's when they get to go and do their own thing um, and try to kind of get ready for when they go into the next phase, which is the mission phase. Mm. And the missions are arranged into tiers and there's some stuff around that. But the important thing to take away is that there are specific missions for each of the different series that you can play. Um, and you're as a player of the game your job is to to make those things fit what you're doing oh, okay. um, and to have those be a guide to how you kind of progress the story forward. So there is, uh, you don't just get to do whatever you want. There's kind right. of like a, a, a band of, of action that you're meant to kind of operate within. Um, and then after the mission, there's fallout, which is a very short phase, but still kind of an essential one, right? Of like how the world reacts to this big thing that you've done, whether you've succeeded or failed. Um, and those that episode loop runs as many times as it needs to to complete a season. And then, you know, you reset from there. So I've got five people 
uh, five players are going to sit down. I'm going to run Girl by Moonlight. One of them is going to be the magical girl archetype. What do I do with my other four players? Yeah, so. You understand what I'm asking, right? Sorry, no, this is this one's not landing. Sorry. So I assume that only one person gets to be the magical girl or. Oh, no. So there's a team. Okay, so talk to me. Yeah, so uh, we have one director, right, who's kind of our GM right. role. And then we'll have. Uh, between three and four protagonists, as okay. I call them. Um, and the protagonists, their job is to play a compelling character. And so they are going to pick from one of seven character playbooks mm-hmm. uh, and they will make up their magical girl and they're all part of a team and they all work together. So, you know, this is also an element that's really fundamental to Blades and will be very familiar to anyone that's played it, right? Is that you are, a, you have your gang, your crew, whatever. Right. Similarly in Girl by Moonlight, we do have, we have a group um, and that group needs to work together to get things done. And so, um, you know, one, one character might be the kind of a hero of the story mm-hmm. uh, in hindsight, you know, at the end we might look back and say, Oh yeah, that was kind of our main character and everyone else was really filling in their story. But all of the protagonists stories are pretty tightly integrated because they all have a lot of stuff that points them at each other gotcha. and a lot of ways in which they're kind of interdependent. So like in blades, when you recover from harm, you just go see a doctor and you know, that's like a thing you do on your own. In Girl by Moonlight, you help someone else recover. It costs you your downtime action to fix their harm. And, you know, there is that connection and the the interdependence, right, that you then have to discuss as a group. Like, okay, yeah, well, if I want to get better, I need to ask someone for help. Right. And they have to be willing to help me. Um, and so that that group dynamic is really, really fundamental to the game. Um, the, you know, the power of friendship is a, is a trope within <laughs> sure. this kind of fiction uh, that I have not uh, turned a blind eye to. We've, we've incorporated that. It's in there. Well, so maybe what will help me understand it even better, Andrew, is can you give me some ideas of, of the playbooks? So yes. what are these archetypes? So we have, I have seven playbooks in the game. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's probably not an exhaustive list, but I think it's the kind of the most interesting or compelling ones that I could come up with. Um, and so the... The one we'll put up front, I guess, is the unlikely hero. And the unlikely hero's whole shtick is that they don't actually have magical powers yet. Mm. Um, so kind of like how the mortal in uh, Monster Hearts is the one character type that isn't... Well, okay, well, the mortal is a monster, but they're a different kind of monster right. than the other ones. <laughs> um, so the unlikely hero, right, they they are certainly still a magical girl, even if they're not fully magical yet. Right. But they really fully embody that coming into your own storyline and you kind of get to pick your moment or have your moment picked for you when you have to embrace that destiny and, and become the hero of the story. And so in that sense, you know, they're positioned to be really central uh, and to, to really at first be really dependent on the other characters and then later have an opportunity to, to save them and to have that big reversal of fortune. Um, That's cool. And that was, that was a really important design to kind of come up with up front. Um, But then we'll have stuff like there's the outsider and the outsider um, is a playbook that has a rival. So they pick Mm. one of the other protagonists and their whole deal is about having this relationship with that protagonist, that other protagonist where, you know, they want to outdo them. They hate them. They love them, whatever. (laughs) And that could be two way where both characters are like, yeah, no, i I'm going to do better than you. We are rivals. Or it could be one way where it's like, I really hate this person. I can't stand them. I need to outdo them at all every turn. And they're like, no, I like you. You're nice. We're friends. That's cool. Why are you, why are you mad all the time? Um, which, 
you know, that's like a behavior that I will do when playing role playing games is I will just pick someone and be like, no, my character is all about messing with your character or engaging with your character. Um, And so it was really fun to make a playbook that centers around that and that makes that pivotal to how it operates. Um, And there's some other stuff within the outsider about them being you know, more, more inclined to violence than the other characters that they maybe have a troubled past or they used mm-hmm. to be, uh, aligned with your adversaries or these kinds of things. There are a bunch of little spins that you can put on it, but that they will, all outsiders will have that one central thing that they have a right. rival and then they're pointed at. Um, and then, you know, something like the time traveler who has traveled mm. through time to change another character's fate. And so they have this thing that they're sure is going to happen. Interesting. Um, and and really, you know, their whole deal is about meddling in someone else's life and telling them how to live it and deciding that they know better than you oh, what wow. you should be doing. Right. And so um, that's all put in the frame of time travel and of prophecy and and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's really about, um, yeah, being nosy and getting into other right. people's business. Um, yeah. And, and that, and that, and that player to player via character yeah. bond and connection. Right. And so all the different character playbooks have something like this, where it pretty much forces the player to yeah. interact with the other players to take, take a stance on what's going on. That's going to either match or run against what the other players are doing. Um, and, and set their characters, into into complicated relationships with the other characters where they're framing them or foiling them or supporting them or or fighting against them in different ways but that ultimately that friction is made to to build towards catharsis and towards you know triumph against their adversaries because you don't end up fighting you don't fight each other you go and you fight the other thing and and along the way you might bicker and argue or (laughs) or bounce off of each other but it's all heading in that same direction. So uh, of all the playbooks that you look at, what was the last one? What was the last one? Either It may not be the last one you started, but the, the last one that you sanded the corners on. So I had this, uh, there's one playbook called the guardian. And for a long time, they were, they were like the first one that I designed. And so they kind of ended up being a little bit too generic. Um, and they were just like sticking to the real, the real core of the genre about like, yeah, you know, looking out for your friends and, you know, just the basic, basic, basic stuff. And eventually I was like, no, this is too basic. No one would ever want to play this. Um, and so the, the finishing touch on that, that made it work was I came up with this idea that they have a, a code that they live by. Ooh. Uh, and so the code is like, there's like a list of things and you pick one of them that you are allowed to do. I'm just going to check my notes so I can read this out. Yeah, because it's, I'd like to hear what some very of these particular. might be. Um, so, when you play the guardian, uh, you live by a code and your code forgets all but one of the following violence, lying, admitting fault or asking for help. And so you might be unable to do violence, in which case you can lie and admit fault or ask for help. Or, but if you want to do violence, then you can't lie or you can't admit fault or you can't ask for help. Right. Um, and so it's this kind of awkward constraint that you get put into and you get rewarded for playing into it. And you also get rewarded if you make sure that everyone else plays into it as well and abides oh, wow. by your code. And right. a bunch of other things kind of interact with it, um, like when people violate it and that kind of stuff, when your opponents violate it. Um, but that was the clincher for me, was coming up with these, essentially these special abilities that are 
that are at the root of each playbook that they always have. And for a long time, the Guardian didn't have one and it felt really flat. And so I managed to actually figure out this idea and, and cool. nail it. And, and that was the cherry on top that it really needed. And then everything else came together. A bunch of things that were really flat. I kind of put a bit of that flavor into them and they came alive in a really important way. So. So, Andrews, I'm talking to people to make games, uh, and I've learned a lot. I knew nothing about playtesting, and I understand it a lot better now. And and one of the things that I think is interesting in playtesting is finding out uh, the big problem, right? I hear <laughs> playtesters are really good at, 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 at finding what's wrong with your game. They're terrible at telling you how to fix it, but they're really good at pinpointing problems. So in the playtesting process, what problems did they find that you that you attacked? Uh, no, the game was perfect. Right the start. <laughs> we we play tested it once. It was me yeah. and uh, me and. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the process of playtesting, I mean, I was very fortunate in the playtesters that I had because a lot of them really got the concept yeah. and leaned into it in a bunch of important ways. Um, so like my friend Violet uh, did did me a kindness and kind of uh, looped me into doing a, a long running playtest campaign with her and some other folks. Uh and so that was immensely helpful, but it was the playtesting process was pretty smooth and that I didn't have to tear up a ton of stuff and redo it. There was a lot of like dialing in numbers and and trying to hit the the pacing that is built into the game. Right. Was definitely a pretty delicate thing because if it's too forced and too arbitrary, then it really starts to grate on players and it yep. and it can run contrary to what to the emergent kind of story that is happening. And you don't want to have to be ramming the round peg through the square hole uh, yep. with your story well it's like okay now we have to do the climactic thing but we've you know we don't really feel like we're there yet we're not there yet yeah. um so a lot of a lot of those kinds of tweaks and 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 measures and adjustments which i kept going back and forth on over the course of development and playtesting was really essential in nailing those and playing with people who had a really good rhythm and who could drive the story to those places uh without the game's help right and then you and then you kind of match their pace right or fall right. in line with their pace um was definitely a big thing but yeah i i got really lucky other than having that you know i started as a powered by the apocalypse game and i ditched that after one <laughs> playtest session right like that was probably the most dramatic just like no nah, sure. this is junk get it out of here um i stayed pretty true to the kind of core conception of the game uh pretty consistently there was lots of little like small scale dialing but the the broad strokes stayed relatively untouched which i think was a result of me having that really clear aesthetic goal right up front uh and a really good scaffolding to build on in terms of blades in the dark and, and monster hearts um those did a lot of the heavy lifting like i didn't have to reinvent a system for rolling dice or yeah. any of these things right where you would really spend a lot of time right. grinding normally yeah. so running it as a hack uh made that process so much smoother um and just yeah hitting good tables like uh at go play northwest the way i got my publishing deal was with a playtest copy of the game where the crew at the table was my friend violet john harper uh andy uh and then sean like came in halfway through and watched us play and i got home and had an email that was like hey you want to publish this game it's really great so that must have been incredible <laughs> starting with john harper sitting to play your game so yeah, well, now, my now, hack of you, his game right well, well. yeah like and we're not going to gloss over this so now i'm going to make you go back to then right so you have got a hack of this person's game they sit down at your table what the hell is going through your mind well so 
I'm cheating a bit here because I already knew John before that. We had played a game together. We played a game of Apocalypse World uh, way back in the day. Um, And this is different. And we really hit it off during that, though. Like his his play style and mine line up pretty well. And we hadn't. He's hard to get along with. I mean, he seems to get along with at the table at the very least. He's really easy. He's just he's it's, it's a, he's annoyingly pleasant. <laughs> and so, um, you know, he and I became friends after that later down the line, um, or at least closer friends. But we were acquainted, sure. and so it wasn't too uncomfortable. I was I was nervous, obviously, but everyone at that table was so adept at yeah. role playing and so bought in uh, that it it ran smoothly. Um, and you know credit to them for making my publishing deal happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like uh, it was also not the first session I had run at that convention. And I had a, another group with just some, some people I didn't know, some complete strangers, but it played out really nicely and it was fun. Um, and we were doing at that stage, here's the wild thing is at that stage, the game did not have it's like convention play one shot model that I later developed. And so we had to go through the whole process that you would do to set up the game for a campaign play, which is pretty extensive. Yeah. We got through all of our world building and everything like that, all character creation within the first like 45 minutes or hour of sitting down at the table and then got to play for like two or three hours. Um, and you know, those players being as capable as they were was what let us actually get to the meat of the game and, yeah. and really move through it. If they had been uh, clumsy or slow or whatever, right? Like that wouldn't, wouldn't have sung the way it did. And I wouldn't have, wouldn't have landed my publishing deal. <laughs> and that, that, I can't even imagine what it must have been like when you got that email. That's that, that has got to be quite a moment. Yeah. I, I, ha- I have this weird thing where anytime I feel any big emotion, I always also get sad. And so it was like this really <laughs> exciting thing that was, uh, I was very happy about. And I almost, uh, I was like tearing up and was like yeah. upset and kind of distraught when I was at work and one of my coworkers came into the break room and was like, are you okay? Do you need a hug? And I was like, I do need a hug, <laughs> um, which was very sweet of her to offer. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was big and you know, a, a great deal of work still to be done following sure. that. But um, it wasn't too long from there to get to a point where like the game system, the rules, the mechanics, the abilities and stuff like that were pretty much locked in um, by early 2018. So let's say that I'm a director um, and, and I've got uh, four people at my table that are I'm going to we're going to play with. We're going to go through everything. Right. We've got time upon time. We're going to meet mm-hmm. every week. But I've got one player who is not familiar with this genre at all. What would be a good thing for the director to do to really kind of set the stage for somebody who just has not only never played girl by moonlight, but is unfamiliar with the touchstones as well. So hopefully uh, I have designed this game in such a way that you don't, you don't actually need to be familiar. The, oh, wow. the stuff for world building is it's guided enough that it very reliably outputs a, a suitable magical girl situation, setting characters and so on. Um, it was something that I, um, worked at pretty hard because yeah, like you pull the setting out of blades, you need to put something robust in its place. Uh, and so I knew that I needed to, to deliver a really, um, holistic system and sequencing it correctly was also a big thing to figure out. Um, because what I settled on is this idea that you, the very first thing you do when you sit down to play girl by moonlight is that you name the antagonism and so you know what you're what you're fighting against. And then the next thing you, that you figure out is what the world is like, what the mundane world is like. And so 
you get the sense of, okay, cool. Here's what we're fighting. Here's the world we're trying to change. The game asks you what society holds to be sacred and what society holds to be profane. Nice. And then later it asks you how you embody what is what society holds to be profane and how you you know, choose to undermine or, or counter what it considers sacred. And the things that society holds to be sacred are things like money, hatred, right. like they're all bad things. Right. And it, it considers love profane or whatever. Right. Mm. And so I'm trying in the course of this world building to always show all the players at the table, you know, like what, what is at stake within the game? What matters? What is this game about? It's all deep into the roots of all of that stuff. And the things that you need in order to make good decisions, you're going to, you're going to build out those things ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And so you're never going to be left, you know, bereft, not knowing what's going on. And it starts out with very guided stuff where you're picking from prompts. And by the end, you're answering these very open-ended questions because you've got that grounding and that understanding. Um, and character creation happens kind of in the middle of that. And so there's cool. this thing where you're not, you're never making characters in girl by moonlight into a vacuum because they will, they will really fall flat if you do that. Um, yeah. The game is really the game really wants you all to be tightly integrated and you know related and to make sense together to be a cohesive group. So we're recording this before the crowdfunding begins, but we're going to release it in tandem with that. So people listening right now, you can scroll mm -hmm. down, you can get the link to the crowdfunding um, for Girl by Moonlight, and uh, we'll wait till you get back. But um, <laughs> I talked about the start. We've talked about the middle. The other part that fascinates me in this process is the end. Um, it tends to take a lot longer than we want it to. It tends to be a lot more tedious. The fun part's over. When when are you going to put the pencils down? And don't tell me deadlines. I, I want to say as a creator, when, when do you stop? When do you know, like, hey, okay, I'm not doing this because Sean told me to. I am <laughs> done with this game. I mean, yeah, like there are still bits of it that I could go back and, you know, maybe rework a little bit here mm -hmm. and there. Like, you know, you, you, you will never, I think, hit a point where you're where you're truly done with it. You just stop. I think it's it's right. a very it's definitely a truism about art because yep. because you're never the same. You're never the same author. Right. When you when you revisit <laughs> it good point. a year later. Right. Yeah. Like you have changed. You have grown. You're different. Yeah. You know, you've gotten better or worse at game design uh, and you're going to have different ideas when you yep. when you see that thing and react to it. Um, I had this really funny experience because you had mentioned in the kind of in the initial emails to set up this interview, you had mentioned some work I did for hack the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went back and read that and like, I was like, Oh damn, this is good. Like <laughs> I thought it was great. I didn't, I didn't even like recognize it at first. Cause it had, I handed that in uh, from the hospital <laughs> while Are I was kidding going through. Me? Yeah. I had like done all the work basically right before um, but my final submission from that was done from a hospital bed. And so it wow. kind of exists within this space in my memory that is really dominated by these other Moment events that were happening. And yeah. so it it was just like completely out of my mind. And I went back to it and I was like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, yeah, but I could like fix that. I don't quite like this use of language. There were some bits where I was like, yeah, I would I would engage with these topics a little bit differently now. Um so yeah, like you're never really, you're never really done with any idea. You just choose to set it down and, yeah, and have the restraint to stop fucking with it. Right. And like, and move on and work on the next thing, which is really important to be able to do.
and, and but what's interesting about that for me, Andrew, is that, you know, the, the cliche is, is that I don't watch my own movies. I don't read my own books. You know, when I'm done, I'm done and I walk away. It's pretty cool for you to go back to hack the planet and go, I kind of like this. Like, I'm, I, like I could hear the pride in your voice. And that's that's got to be kind of cool. I mean, it, it's ideally you end up in a place where you're not embarrassed by your, your prior work, right? And like, you know, some of the more kind of the prose bits of the GBM manual, um, some of them I will read them and I'll be like very happy about it, right? I'll be like, yeah. damn, this is, this is good. This is moving. This is compelling stuff. And, you know, it's a little bit it's easy to get self-conscious about that stuff I'm as sure. well. And, and, you know, I experienced some discomfort with acknowledging whether or not I think something that I've done is good, but yep. I've tried to be kind to myself as well in that way. And so, yeah, like uh, I've stopped working on Girl by Moonlight mostly because I want to move on to the next thing and I want to yep. put, I want to put this idea down. I don't want to play with it anymore. Um, I want to move on, but also uh, I am happy with where I got the game to and with the, you know, especially the work around writing the manual, that was a big undertaking. And that's kind of like a a separate thing from designing yeah. the game, right? It's about you're essentially you are revisiting the game when you do that, I think, because you are, uh, you know, this is this is commentary upon your own work, right? Yeah. To, to explain it to people, to tell people how to play it. Um, and it's a completely different skill set to write a good game manual versus writing a good game. Um, and so this like completed version of the game that i had in 2018 right largely unchanged i still had to do several hundred pages yeah. of writing about it um i had to write you know uh non about my own work that i had created so yeah. so in that sense right like you are revis you revisit your work at least a few times in that process um but yeah i I'm actually in a place where I'm happy with it, which is not usually my attitude towards things. I'm pretty, I'm pretty grumpy and, and self uh, deprecating about a lot of stuff, but. Well, and I think it's important for people listening to understand, you know, when we talk about crowdfunding, we can crowdfund things in many different stages. And I think it's good for them to understand that this, this thing is baked. Oh yeah. Uh, it might be on the cooling rack a little bit between now when it gets in their hands, but it would, but it's fully baked, which I think is uh, pretty exciting. So guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to get to one of my favorite segments. And what I'm hearing is one of your favorite segments. We're going to talk about what you're grooving on. We'll be right back. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, 
and there is. We don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. Okay, so um, as I probably alluded to, Andrew, this has become a, a bit of a favorite segment for a lot of the audience. And I know it's one of my favorite segments because I think it's so interesting to find out what what stuff is being created outside that creatives enjoy. And I find it very insightful as far as understanding the type of creator you are. So we're going to put you instead of uh, spending an hour or so with me talking about what you make, we're going to put you in the uh, the passive seat, the, the uh, receiver seat. So is there anything, books, movies, video games or anything that's gotten its hooks into you recently? Well, yeah, I've been trying to read more and get <laughs> back onto you. the because, <laughs> you know, it's something I enjoy a lot, but don't always make the time for. Uh, yeah. So I've been tearing through a bunch of books Uh really enjoying the work of Jeff Vandermeer, um, which is uh, two two trilogies by him that I've kind of finished recently and not so recently, uh, the Ambergris trilogy and the Southern Reach trilogy, um, both very different works, but... And I'm not familiar with either of them, so, so, so let's start off with, if someone is listening right now and they're going to start, which trilogy should they start with and what, what the hell is it? Uh, the Southern Reach trilogy is really good and I think a great introduction to the author and kind of what he's what he's about um it's uh sort of sort of in the kind of horror genre space but really interested in the natural world and uh the kind of internal world of people mm. and so the Southern Reach trilogy is about uh follows these characters who are going into a place called Area X which is somewhere in on the coast of Florida this uh, exclusion zone that is weird in various ways and that they, they journey into, but it's all kind of tangled up in symbolism and metaphor around uh, trauma, grief. And, and, you know, as the last book in the series is named acceptance, this idea of coming to terms with uh, things that you have gone through and, and the ways in which that changes people uh, and the versions of yourself that you leave behind in the process of that. Now, this rings to me of Annihilation, the movie Annihilation. Is is there a parallel there? Annihilation is the first book in the trilogy. So, ah, yes, look at that. Okay. So there's some context for. Oh, for, yeah. okay. Um, oh, so that so Annihilation is based on the first book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, so, and so how did the movie do for a book that you enjoyed so much? Well, you know, I haven't gotten around to seeing the movie. I was going to watch it with a friend of mine after I finished reading the books. And I've only just recently uh, polished off that series. So oh, I'll get okay. to dig into it. But I, yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic. I really like the, I know the cast in it. Uh, I recognize a lot of people in the cast in it and they're all very good actors. So. Yeah. I am um, having not read the book. I enjoyed the movie. Um, and uh, I guess it's true enough to the adaptation that your description of the series made me think of the movie. It's always a good sign. Right? <laughs> it's a good sign. So when you, when you were reading this, did it get you right from the beginning? Like the first book you're like, I'm in, or did you hate read it and get to the good stuff or. 
oh, I, I loved the first book. The, the main character, the biologist, who's kind of your perspective character, is so... She's written in this way that is both, like... She's an unreliable narrator, but mostly in terms of how she reports her own feelings. Right. Which is a really unusual way to frame that, right? Usually that's the thing that you get for sure, is that yeah. you understand the character's internality, and then how they see the world is kind of fuzzy or flawed in some way but my read on it is mostly that like she reports very accurately what's going on and takes a lot of interest in you know the the environment around her the natural mm -hmm. world she's a biologist after all um but that she is really cagey about her own history and her own feelings and motivations for things um and so it's a really it's a really compelling tension to have when reading a book because you're trying to like figure the person out right and figure the events of the story out um, like its own little mystery within within the context of that that's interesting and could you did you now I've, i find unreliable narrators fascinating when i'm reading but if done wrong it's frustrating right it becomes <laughs> a very frustrating read and i've i've read many times where it's done well and sometimes where it's, it's just frustrating and i don't care about this person anymore how soon do you realize the level of re reliability that she's giving like is it pretty obvious from the beginning or do the, do, does he unfold it or yeah for me it it kind of snuck in over time because initially nice. you expect people to be vague but then right. she like insists on being vague <laughs> throughout the story and you really start to question you know what why she's delivering things the way she is and you know this this book or a series of books uh I was reading this while finishing up some of the extra material for Girl by Moonlight, and it mm -hmm. definitely informed what I was writing in the, um, or kind of reframed how I was approaching two of the like single session kits that I'm making. Um, the one for Beneath a Rotting Sky pulled some more of these like biological horror elements and, yeah. and ecological kind of adversity stuff that is presented in those books. And then uh, In a Maze of Dreams, that whole idea of like a story that's about a character who is really reluctant to reveal their interiority to you is really central to how I'm building out this, this one shot where it's the landscape is the dream of this one character that all of your oh. protagonists have a relationship to. And so you go into her dream to try to figure out and solve all these mysteries, but you're also intruding upon her psyche. And so, you know, there's all of these ways in which these different, tensions are at play within that and reading those books definitely helped uh percolate those ideas in my head and, and, and so, wow, that's super fascinating because at, at, at one moment we've got a player character who is both a character and the landscape at at the same time in their own way um like how uh, well, like i think that's so cool but i don't know how you pull that off like like <laughs> like, like how how in how much do, let's say I'm playing that particular PC where everybody's coming into my dreamscape. A am I in control of that? This is super interesting. Oh, sorry. So, so yeah, the character whose dream you go into isn't one of the protagonists. She's oh, okay. She's one of the kind of adversaries. She's referred to as one of the suspects in the oh, in the series. Okay. Oh, and so neat. the director would mostly be responsible for portraying oh, okay. her. But yeah, you end up in this place where you're creating like a you know, a symbolic landscape, a landscape that is formed in metaphor and to reflect oh, cool. this person's interiority. Yeah. So how much, um, to bring us a little bit off, off topic or back on topic, because now we're <laughs> going to talk about <laughs> Grow by Moonlight. When you say a one session, right? And this is obviously, a, it sounds like a different mode uh, mm -hmm. for the game. 
I'm, I'm interested to understand what changes. Um, so what adjustments are you making to make a one session possible? Yeah. So I've tried to develop like a, what I've thought of as like a vertical slice of the game. Ooh. So it's a trimmed down version of every step that you would do in the normal process of like, you know, creating your setting and all these things that we kind of talked about being present in the game. Um, those are all still there, but in these ways that are made quicker and more digestible and, and easier to play and just, you know, hit the ground running. So rather than go through this whole prompt picking question mm -hmm. and answer kind of process, you know, a lot of the setting and situation are pre-written, but then the players are still expected to do some interpretation. So the director obviously has to present these things and put their spin on it, but also that each protagonist who's kind of pre-generated, right? You have your character that you pick up, that particular character will have certain questions associated with them. And you, you will be asked those questions and expected right. to answer. And they're both uh, positioned from the perspective of your character, but they speak to the broader context that you're within or get you to define some element of the adversity or whatever, but something that's relevant to your character. So like in the one for Honesty of Stars, there's a, a character who tried to liberate the Leviathans from because they're human made these human made world ships and she was a rebel who tried to like stage this insurrection and liberate these ships that were kind of enslaved by humanity uh and so her a lot of her questions are about you know how the the institutions that remain fundamentally misunderstand and misrepresent the leviathans oh that's and cool so it's, it's something that's like close to her heart but that the player for that gets to speak it into existence um is so it accurate oh god i'm sorry so there's that element of like letting the players kind of answer some questions in a more tightly controlled way, but also that like every phase of the game is a little bit pared down as well. You take fewer downtime actions. It's just kind of streamlined a bit and in a way also like a tutorial for the game. So if you've mm -hmm. never played it before, it's a lot easier to pick it up and run with Got it because there's a little more scaffolding at the cost of you having a little less, you know, formative input that there really isn't time for anyway. So my right. hope is that it's a good balance. So uh, this concept um, of 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 table sourcing via prompts is uh, is relatively new to me. Um, and, and I'm going to start off by saying I've, I have I was skeptical at the very first time I bumped into it. And now I'm totally in love with it and have picked it up and put it in games where it doesn't belong because I'm really mm -hmm. enjoying it. Uh, where, where I think it really registered for me is in Jason Cordova's work uh, with the Brindle, Brindlewood Bay uh, series. And what he'll what he'll do there is is very leading prompts. So, for example, Andrew, I might say to you, um, so you, you you walk into this library and, and Andrew, what is it about this library that makes you not trust the librarian? Right. So it's this very leading prompt, mm -hmm. but also gives you agency. How close is that to what you're talking about? Is it that same type of thing? Yeah. Right. Like the the question kind of inherently frames and sets up a bunch of things and then you get to put your spin on it. It's like, you know, when you're trying to get a kid to do something, you, you want them to go outside <laughs> with you because you got to go to the store or whatever, right? You're not going to be like, cool. Do you want to go to the store or not? Because then they're going to be like, no, I want to stay at home and play with my toys, whatever they're going to do. They're a stubborn kid. They're going to react against what you want them to do. Exactly. So instead you don't give them the choice. You say, cool, we're going to the store. Do you want to wear your red jacket or your blue jacket? Yeah. These kinds of questions are really, really helpful if there are like certain things that need to be there, right? Which in this, in the case of Girl by Moonlight, there are certain kind of structural things that need to be there. There needs to be adversity. There needs to be this mm -hmm. thing. So we make sure that those things are in there, but I still want to give players of the game, you know, they're still going to make that interpretive step. 
Right. And to my mind, that's a really productive one, right? I can curate a set of ideas or themes uh, that they're going to play within, and that should be, you know, compelling, right? It's it's easier that way. They don't have to pick from absolutely everything. It's not a blank canvas. Um, I'm saying, yeah, here are some colors. Paint with these. Uh, and that's something that I always appreciate in games when the game is like about something specific and gives me some guidance, but then lets me uh, take it and spin it and interpret it. And I think what I love the most about it, and it sounds like that's what's present here, is that the answer is meaningful, right? It's not just, you know, what is the bartender's name type of table sourcing, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's something that actually is going to impact the path and and how that narrative unfolds. Did you know from the very beginning that you wanted this to be part of that process? Um, like, I, I'm curious whether that was a, a North Star at the very beginning of the design work, or is that something that came in later? It's something that I've always really enjoyed, like uh -huh. like Apocalypse World. It does a really great job yeah. of, of putting a bunch of this stuff in kind of secretly, <laughs> where it's, you know, about like picking names for things, or which is a little more surface, but then maybe also like what kind of... Uh, you know, like what is your angel's, you know, home or setting or, or uh, infirmary like? What is the, yeah. um, what is the mechanics, you know, workshop like? What's in it? And there will be these prompts and picking those and combining them already creates an. That's already an expressive move that creates something new. But then also to, to combine them and then interpret them right between those two acts. There's already a ton of. Um, creativity at play there right and this is you know we can tie this all the way back to uh it was gustav klempt with the with the urinal that he picked out right like the act of selection is a creative act the act right. of curation is a creative act we you know we have a lot of precedents uh academically for these kinds of things so i see no reason why that shouldn't exist in role-playing games and we are already doing, we always do that with any game, no matter what, because in the course of playing it, we are recontextualizing it, right? We, we always have to interpret the rules. The rules are software that runs on really messy, fungible kind of human hardware. Right. Yeah. And so to, I think to embrace that is a very powerful move and to make that really explicit is going to get people, yeah. you know, it's going to prime the players of the game to understand that that's what they're doing at every turn. I've never thought about it that way, Andrew, that that in reality, this is not new. It's codifying what's always been happening. Right. And 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 just putting a little bit to your point, putting a little bit of structure around it, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting. Now, when I have conversations with GMs and I talk about my which, again, not a new thing, but new to me. And I'm now in love with this little technique. Um, what what times I sometimes I hear pushback, which is, you know, players don't want that players don't want to be put on the spot. They um, you know, what if the player doesn't say, you know, can't come up with something. Um, is, is there advice that we can give? Because I I'm lucky because my tables have embraced it, right. They've had mm -hmm. no difficulty doing it, but I could imagine that there's potentially players that are like, yeah, this is not for me. This is not fun. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Or maybe ways we can help in that scenario or, or still play with those people and allow them to get enjoyment. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, to go back to that idea of this is software that's running on, on flexible human hardware, right? Like we always are able to adjust things and, and right. people will do this without even noticing that they're doing it a lot of the time. But like, if something about a game doesn't work for you, you're not, 
you know, beholden to the rules. I'm not going to show up at your door and get mad at you if you play my game, quote unquote, wrong, right? And I won't. You're not getting a 404 error. No, no, exactly, right? It is. They they don't fail hard and and right. abrupt and completely in the way that software running on computers does. We have this flexibility that we innately bring to them, and so so I would think just you know make adaptations as you need to right for whatever reason whether it's a matter of like an accessibility thing in terms of just someone really doesn't think well you know on snap moment to moment Mm -hmm. decisions but given some time they'll come up with a good contribution or if they need to like have notes or be prepared beforehand right like there's no reason why they can't read ahead or look at the series ahead of time in my game like again i'm not going to show up at anyone's door and tell them (laughs) otherwise and and, you know, like I have to accept the fact as a as a game designer, as a writer of role playing games that like I write the game rules and then people are going to do whatever with yeah. them. And I as much as I might want them to play a certain way, I have no insight into what they're doing and no control over what they're doing and and that they should take it and adapt it to their needs and adjust it and fit it into their play culture because, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, is a role playing game play culture going to be anything like it is now? almost certainly not right right so yeah. so there's always going to be that translation step Correct. that needs to happen and there's lots of room to uh sneak in changes and and codify it however you want in that process yeah i could not agree more and i i think you know obviously covering it during session zero and a cat's process of saying hey this is this this will come up how do we feel about this and um, kind of setting those expectations. I promised you at the beginning of the segment that we were going to go way off topic and we already <laughs> did. So I'm going to bring us back, but I'm glad we did. Cause that was super interesting, but let's, I want to talk about the second trilogy. So mm-hmm. we've got the first trilogy. Um, and I love, you know, the last book hints a little bit of what the overall journey is. Second trilogy has nothing to do with the first. Yep. Completely different. It's okay. more of a, it's more of a fantasy story, although not in the sense of like swords and dragons and adventuring. Um, but there's it's they center around this city, this fictional city named Ambergris or Ambergris. I guess it's G-R-I-S, which I always want to go. The Francophone in me wants to make that clear. <laughs> um, but it's this fictional city that's on a river um, that is colonized very early in its history. And there are these mushroom people who get. Uh, slaughtered and driven underground and then the colonists like chase them underground and have these horrible harrowing experiences and the king comes back out he's the only survivor and he's blind and has like gone kind of off his rocker it's a whole weird there's this whole like scary creation myth around the city that's found it's founded in colonial violence in this way that's Mm -hmm. really uh that's almost fable like um interesting and the whole first book is this collection of like essays and documents and kind of in fiction historical stuff from the city that like then, artifacts. Yeah, sort of. So mostly oh. as texts. And then right. a lot of them are interspersed with like actual moment to moment narration from those times. So like one of my favorite stories from within it, cause it's kind of a bunch of different stories uh, is uh, it's about an artist, a painter who's an incredibly famous painter. And so it's all of these art history academic essays about him or excerpts of, of those essays oh, that's interesting. about his works and then showing you his actual experience in his life and, and the things that informed those works and the, all the art history historians are totally wrong, but in these ways where their assessments are grounded in like the history or the attempts to like 
make myth make do myth making out of like this figure or the history of the city wow. or the events that were happening and really the truth of the matter is much more these like harrowing personal experiences that he has that the artist has that are also like really unbelievable like no one would ever believe that he had been through this thing that happened where like you know this important historic he is forced to like murder this important historical figure Wow. Um, and like do all these other weird things that like, you know, you wouldn't, no one would ever believe his story if he told them. And he makes these paintings that are about those experiences, but because the people looking at them historically have no, none of that context, right. They, they impose this other thing onto it. So there's this really complicated, uh, you know, narrative structure going on that isn't hard to read by any measure, but like, imagine sitting down to write that as an author, yeah. right. It's a very multi-layered thing. And I think it speaks really highly of Jeff Vandermeer's skill at writing prose that he's able to pull off this maneuver. Um, so very, very interesting book. The second book is an, is a biography of this uh, historian who's really interested in the like mushroom city or people that are underneath the city now and still kind of are around, but in, kind of on the fringes of things. Um, he writes a biography his biography is then annotated by his sister oh my god but then he comes back and annotates the annotations and kind of closes off the narrative at the end and so it's this really interesting exploration of this individual and his you know personal history his academic works on and on and on so these That's very incredible structurally layered books very very cool stuff very wow. really compelling um and then the third book in the series is just a really competently written noir. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, he's got range. You know, he's doing this whole range of things. And they're all they're all really great for what they are. They're all very different, but they're all kind of centered around the same fictional city. Got um, it. Yeah, very, very cool set of works. Uh, I sat down to read it as an ebook, and so I wasn't aware that I had all three books in one thing. And so I was reading, I was like, damn this shit's long and i kept going through like oh there's another book okay cool keep going. page four of three thousand my god yeah like it was it was honestly like 600 pages of material or something all told so it was really funny to just kind of naively stumble into this uh collected works but i was delighted at every turn so yeah that is fascinating and fascinating because obviously like you said it layered like so many layers here so many different and within those layers so many different places to to make some statements and mm. and and to and to and to put in uh, a perspective by using multiple perspectives that that sounds absolutely fascinating to me. One of my favorite books that that is uh, did something not similar, but the only thing I can think of this line is uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I loved in Bram Stoker's Dracula is that it's all letters. Right. So, but but to be able to unfold that incredible narrative story using documents in that same way, it, it's incredible. But then to put on top of that within the biography to have the annotations and then the annotations of the annotations, yeah. each of them having their own perspective. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah. Like an, an argument happening through, right. through letters or exchanges. Yeah. Oh, it's always so really cool. fun to witness. So, oh, that is so, so cool. Um, all right. So we've got uh, six books that we're going to we're going to jump <laughs> on to. And you've done an incredible job selling it. Uh, both of both of those uh, yeah, books. Anything else? I know. Right. <laughs> that's what everybody hates about this. So people get mad at me on this podcast, Andrew, because it's called there's a term that's being been uh, coined by uh, uh, mostly the patrons on our discord. They call I've been cragged. 
And, and what it talks about is like I hear Craig do an interview and not only do I end up buying the game that because it sounds so cool after hearing about how it was made. Yep. But then in the last segment, I end up buying like two video games and, and three books after hearing how cool those are, too. <laughs> well, much to the disappointment of these uh, these listeners, uh, if you buy my game, it's kind of four games. You have to play it at least four times in each of the different series play sets. Uh, and then. Um, there's two trilogies of books I've mentioned, plus another seven <laughs> books by another author that I'm about to pitch. Uh, <laughs> this, this free so podcast whole curriculum is really expensive. at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right, you know, so that's what the library is for. That's, that's why I got true. most of these that's books. True. I've been very delighted. But a friend of mine actually works at the library now. And so I, it reignited my, my, the library's existence and my attention. And I was like, oh, right. I can just go get these books for free. <laughs> It's funny. It's funny how you usually forget that I rediscovered it with my daughter, right? Mm -hmm. she, because she's become a reader. Thank God. Um, <laughs> and I took her to the library and I had the same experience. I'm like, how did I forget that this was a thing? Right. Because right? it was a huge part of my childhood. Yeah. For, the same is true for me. I used to spend a lot of time in the library and it's kind of one of the last remaining, especially in America, one of the last remaining kind of public spaces where you can go yeah. and hang out and you don't need to pay money to be there. Yeah. Um, and it is a, a public good kind of unabashedly. Uh, well, and, and, so, and a community magnet too, because exactly. a lot of the community programs are happening there and, uh, and whatnot. And then I'm not going to get into it, but then to see them under attack the way they have been like, yeah, it's very get, distressing, right? Yeah. I get a little yeah. angry. I get a little <laughs> angry, but we won't, that's a whole nother podcast. Uh, Craig is angry about something. Yeah. Um, you know, I right, started, so I started writing my game in 2015, 2016, and I was very worried that uh, the its moment would pass, that we would, it would be published into a world where, oh, you know, like trans people are more broadly accepted and it's chill now. And like internet culture and like weird cultish behavior and like, inf you know, viral information virality would have a different character to it. But no, in fact, it has only gotten more and more pertinent yeah. and I'm upset about this you know yeah, i would don't rather take this, it's moment had passed yeah don't take this the wrong way andrew i would love for your 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 game to no longer be quite on topic that'd be great you know, if we yeah could. exactly <laughs> given given the subject matter i'm engaging with so it's yeah. been it's been a bit distressing to see that unfold even as part of me then is like it's gonna be good for the sales numbers though it's gonna be good <laughs> You little dirty capitalist, you. <laughs> or just, you know, smugly being like, I did, I did see this coming. I was on to something. It's true. I you know, called there, it. There's a way in which it is affirming of like the ideas that I've had and that I'm exploring. But also, yeah, I really wish it was not so. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be great if it didn't have to be a subject. But all right. So we've got some more books. <laughs> uh, yes. Just to carry on. Uh, I'm reading another book for, by this author. So Becky Chambers is another one I would highly recommend. She's written a bunch of science fiction stuff as well as some other genre work, maybe more solar punk would be the Ooh. category I'd put it in, but her science fiction work is really interested in cultures and the ways in which, you know, history and culture are intertwined and, and, you know, affect each other. Um, so I'm reading a book called the record of a space born few, at the moment that is really, really interested in kind of uh, alien intercultural exchange and experiences. And so it's about a bunch of travelers who kind of get stranded at basically like a space truck stop together mm -hmm. by this accident that happens outside. Um, and they're all, uh, you know, only kind of partially or somewhat familiar with, with each other's cultures and experiences and get to get to learn about each other through these various kind of 
passing interactions and you you know there's all these different characters and the chapters kind of alternate whose perspective it's from and so you get these oh, different, love that they're different experiences of each other and the things that are strange to them there's this really charming bit where they're all talking about how gross cheese is because none of them are human <laughs> they're all like cheese that's so that's so weird and one of them has to explain what cheese is because the others don't even know about it and like the thing that they're most creeped out about is that it's made using milk they're like right. oh, they drink milk and they're not children anymore like that's so bizarre and then like halfway through the conversation they're like wait they drink some other animals milk <laughs> and they like all are like getting squicked out and like freaking out about it it's so funny and very very charmingly written and uh becky chambers is really good at writing uh characters that feel really warm and that have moments of like sincerity and, and joy and laughter and these kinds of things uh in general she's a very optimistic author which is something that i really That's appreciate nice. especially in the context yeah. of sci-fi which is so often kind of dystopian yeah. um it's not full-on utopian either there are still problems and things like that but she does imagine a universe that is kinder than the world that we currently live in that's nice yeah. um which i really do appreciate yeah <laughs> it's it's, nice. that's nice every once in a while um but her she has a series of books uh called the monk and robot series which oh, are cool. in this kind of post 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 apocalyptic or post crisis world where there was a big industrialized automation thing that happened and then all the robots kind of liberated themselves and humanity gave half the world to robots and those half that half is all wild so it's just nature growing and the robots are just like chilling out in the woods and stuff um and then human society has become extremely uh kind of circular or contained in the sense that it you know everything is solar and wind powered and the main character has their little like bike powered trailer thing that they're driving around uh doing tea offerings for people because they're uh, kind of they're involved in a monastic tradition of tea uh okay. sharing tea with people as like a therapeutic act uh and so this monk decides that like they're just going to go off into the wilderness which is like kind of not allowed uh, because they're sick of the city life they need a change and they go out into the woods they get kind of lost and stuck because the roads are ruined and they can't really travel around there but they're trying to go to this specific place uh, and they encounter a robot uh and said robot has never met a human before and the oh, human has never met a robot before and so they get there's a theme here you can see in becky's writing but they yeah. learn about each other and each other's histories um and become friends kind of tenuously while journeying to this place that the monk wants to go to because the robot is supposed to go and learn about people that's like their job that they're supposed to be doing and they're kind of lost along the way so again very very charming book with characters that you immediately love and who are very relatable and and have quirky little moments and and humorous moments and heartfelt moments very very fun series of books and it sounds like she does a lot of what i love in good sci-fi which is um thinking through well if this happened then what right yeah. and and what does that mean and how does that unfold and it also sounds like what she does with that is say maybe it's not as different as we think it is right so on the surface the may maybe a lot has changed but maybe not as much has changed as we thought it has it sounds like it has that type of theme to it yeah absolutely and i mean yeah you know all all writing is actually about now this is the thing that a lot of like uh tech working people with really dumb ideas fail to realize is that like <laughs> the dystopia is about right now it's about yep. our society it's not about some future society that doesn't exist uh 
and so yeah in that same way right these are about things that we could be doing now or ways that we could be living now or the ways in which the ways we are living now are dysfunctional you know it's it's engaging with all of that stuff in really hopeful uh and uplifting ways which is again i cannot i cannot overstate how nice that is to have yeah. in fiction <laughs> how yeah. refreshing it is a, a, a touch of optimism in our sci-fi is not is not the worst thing in the world yeah i think people and there's lots of good reasons to be hopeless but a lot of people feel really hopeless uh these days and uh i on the one hand i can't blame them but also i think that a media environment that denies you any optimism or that can't tell stories where good things happen uh, does contribute to that. Um, and it makes people feel like there isn't anything that they can do when there are in fact lots of things that they could be doing. Um, it's just that we are ideologically kind of opposed to acknowledging those things or accepting yep. those things as being good. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so those are some books. Is there any, I'm, I'm interested um, as far as like any movies or any um, less um, highbrow <laughs> hobbies of yours. <laughs> I'm a very highbrow person. I, you you are. I'm very me. intimidated right now, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I'm kind of weird that way in that I don't, I don't like watching on TV. I do enjoy movies quite a lot, but I haven't watched uh -huh. any lately. Um, I've mostly been reading books and trying to kind of educate myself, I guess. I do a lot of you. listening to podcasts on academic or news related kind of topics not necessarily mm -hmm. too serious along the way but still yeah like gosh i've become very boring I, if the, if newspapers were still really a thing i'd be sitting there with my newspaper <laughs> telling you know telling someone not to interrupt me while i read about the economy or whatever like it's i'm well, quite dull i'm afraid <laughs> welcome welcome to getting older my friend i guess so um, is but is that go through phases with you? So do you go through phases where you have very serious focus on some heavy shit, and then where you 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 run away and go for light stuff afterwards, or is this been a a, a a straight line for you? Yeah, I think there is kind of a waxing and waning of it, right. and that it it is connected to like you know where my mental health is at, like where my mood is at. Sure. If I'm really if I'm really in a funk, I will just watch TV. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's usually how I know that I'm that's like, oh, OK, I'm I'm like really not having a great time right now if this is all I can kind of muster the the wherewithal to do. So, yeah, for me, it's a bit of a sign of the times um, and like the games that I do play and the kind of more frivolous uh, activities that I get involved in usually involve other people because I don't like I'm not super keen to play video games on my own because I will just like do it for too long and get into a weird rut. Mm -hmm. um, but playing games with friends totally different a bit more naturally limiting because people will need to like go to bed or eat or whatever and there will be a break and i will be like oh yeah get away from the computer stop playing yeah um so in that sense i've been very fortunate that i have a group of people that i can like hang out with and play games with uh and that's that's how i i spend like every night on a discord with some friends of mine and that is kind of that's a nice gift that was very very much a lifeline during the pandemic height where I was yeah. super, super isolated because the combination of the combination of disability and the pandemic was just like, okay, I'm fully out of public life. Now. Oh. Um, I had one year, uh, 2019 was the year where I was, uh, out of the hospital and had figured things out enough that I could do stuff. Like I went to yeah. Big bad con that year. Um, 
and then I was like, okay, I'm starting to starting to figure things out and like kind of get hit my stride. And then the pandemic happened. Jesus. I was like, okay, never mind. <laughs> Everything sucks. Actually, uh, it was a real uh, a real blow, and that really set me back quite a ways. I don't think I could even imagine, Andrew, and 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 I don't think I fully realized how recent this was for you. And then. I mean, everybody, we, we talk about how we, you know, we lost two or three years of our lives, but that was happening right at, at a crucial yep. right turn in your life. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was wild. And I like I bet. Know, more, more years now of my life living with disability have also featured a pandemic, right? And that, that deeper isolation yeah. is, is the majority of my experience in this way. And so, yeah, it's really hard to like untangle those two things conceptually. Yep. Um, because it, it does make it a lot harder because, uh, you know, my the condition that has, you know, paralyzed me is an autoimmune condition. My own mm-hmm. body, you know, my own immune cells go after my spinal cord. So I'm on an immune suppressing medication to mitigate that. Yep. And I do need to be more careful. And, it, yep. you know, these various medication cycles I have to be really aware of in terms of when I get my vaccinations. And it's had to, mm-hmm. you know, change up that schedule, which further kind of limits my ability to go outside at certain points. And, you know, it's it's a lot of stuff to manage is what I'll say. And, and that it has pushed me into a pretty intense isolation over these years. Like I'm still mostly stuck at home most of the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, um, that, that's something that, um, in, in a, in a much smaller way, but I'm on immune suppressants as well for my Crohn's disease. And yeah, it, there, it was hard to explain to some people like this is, this is more than just me getting sick. Right. It's you know, and, um, it, it, it was hard to explain to some people um, and, and coupled with the fact with Crohn's disease, there was a concern for a bit of time that they didn't know what a COVID infection yeah. would do to the disease, right? Because it potentially could cause, and and I don't know if this would be true for you, but it, there was a fear that it would cause a full attack, right? That, yeah. that, that the yeah. reaction of the immune system would be that. And, um, but it, um, and it also, I don't know if this, if you're this type of person, but it also played into my uh, natural introvert natures. So mm-hmm. it's real easy for me to bury myself, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you give me an excuse not to be with people and I will take that excuse. And um, I have learned, thanks to a wonderful wife, that that's not good for me. And maybe that I should be pressed out of that. So God bless. That's incredible, Andrew. It, um now, now it makes the the optimism thing even clearer, uh, and how important that must be. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> and also, uh, boy, we got real heavy, real fast, Andrew. I'm liking this. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> you going there with me. Um, tabletop gaming, um, and that interaction and that sense of community that comes from it. Uh, I'd like to finish off by finding out: is there has there recently and recently, I mean, the last five ten years, has there been a game that you have not made? that really a session or, or a campaign or something that, that, that was important to you. Um, uh, I'd be curious to know if there's been a a tabletop experience that, that really has stuck with you. It's, it's something that I find fascinating about the hobby. Um, And I'd be curious if, if you can think of a time where you've had either a session or a series of sessions or a table that, that really just, as soon as I start asking the question, that's what pops into your mind. Yeah, I mean, there is, of course, that one, the one session of Girl by Moonlight where I got my publishing deal that's like the first one that gets very, looms very large in my memory. <laughs> sure. I can't, I can't look past that one. And that was with a bunch of really wonderful people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, more recently, 
I did get to play uh, Dream Askew with some friends of mine. I've yet to play um, that game, but God, I've read it and it's so good. It's very good. Uh, really easy to get into. Very, very wonderful set of themes that it's engaging with. And a lot of like recontextualizing of certain familiar elements from like Apocalypse World or things mm-hmm. like this. So if you're if you're in the game playing space already it's got lots to offer you or if you're new to it it's very easy to pick up um and so just a a very solid table of very experienced role players um getting into that game that is so collaborative Mm -hmm. and you know the the power distribution is really flat in that game and or the responsibility distribution or however you want to describe it where there is no gm or anything like that and so everyone is really um, acting very broadly within mm. their uh, interaction with the game, right? You're you're wearing a lot of different hats and doing a lot of different things, and so you get to see, you know, getting to see all these very skilled role players flexing their That's skills cool. very broadly was really really delightful. Um, and I then also even more recently got to play orbital for a friend's birthday and we're going to do our second session of it, which should hopefully wrap things up I'm not uh, this weekend. With orbital. What's orbital? And orbital is, uh, a, another belonging outside belonging game. So it's basically like a, a hack of dream askew. Right. That's like a sci-fi thing where it's on, everything takes place on a space station. Oh, that's cool. Um, that is kind of neutral ground within this very complicated, uh, galaxy, uh, has beautiful art attached to it and a really cool, uh, for online play, they have this mural board set up that's gorgeous and really, really easy to use. So it's really nice in that way we're using that. Um, and again, that same thing of just, you know, everyone getting to collaborate and, and make big contributions and small contributions and play characters. And yeah, it's been it's been really great as like a shorter format, mm-hmm. easier to easier to drop into kind of game um, that is still really really fruitful and and generates a lot of cool stories and good creative output um which is which is no easy feat it's a real testament to the design (laughs) and work there that it that it pulls all that stuff off so yeah and it facilitates all of that right um and and makes that happen um i'm not gonna lie to andrew um this interview could have been three hours longer uh (laughs) i've really really enjoyed our time together um it uh I, I preface, you know, preface with my guests, uh, listeners all the time that I never quite know what we're going to talk about and what direction we're going to go in. And, uh, this is a perfect example of where I think that we've got a much better sense of, of what the game is by really getting a better sense of who you are. So I appreciate you, uh, going down that path with me. Oh yeah, absolutely. And everybody knows they can scroll down and they're going to have links to everything. We're recording this before the crowdfunding begins. But now if you're listening to it, that crowdfunding is out there. So you've got to go check this out. The um, uh, I think it was a day or two ago, I got to see the new cover for the book. Um, I've got to tell you that in the sneak peeks that we got um, that made me reach out to say I need to talk to Andrew. Help me. Um, The art is so just so evocative and to see that cover uh it's just absolutely gorgeous so um but w- if someone is listening to this going craig i do wish this was a four-hour interview with andrew where can they get more andrew uh so you can follow me on social media uh, my twitter is at commuting crow and i'm on co-host as at andrew gillis um if they want more girl by moonlight stuff they can go on the crowdfunder and back that there are also a bunch of actual plays that are happening concurrently with the crowdfunding. So uh, Pixel Circus uh, just today posted a teaser 
image for their game that they're going to be running. Um, and there are going to be a few others out there as well. So I'll be promoting those on my social media as well. Awesome. And this is being done through evil hat. So even if you're listening to this and the crowdfunding is over, you know, you're still going to be able to get it by going to our good friends at evil hat. Um, yep. Thanks again, my friend. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. And for those of you listening, this is the end. You made it through the whole thing. I appreciate you too. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads you still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floorheads on the patreon discord anyway Thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.